Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Spirit of Endurance, A Hard Day's Night. This opens today's edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host. Joined today in the studio live, George Williman, the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress. George, welcome and thanks for coming. Oh, thank you, Nikki Dakota. <laughs> so good to see you. Also, from long distance, where it's, I at least hope, much warmer, J. Todd Anderson, the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers, currently working with George Clooney in one of the Carolinas. J. Todd. Hello. 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 <laughs> with your best British accent, we are That's gathered right. here Whoa, today, today. <laughs> to celebrate. Uh, well, I guess it could be said uh, the uh, the uh, one of the harbingers of the British invasion. Very the- special day in the history of music. Yeah, Very indeed. special day. Not because we have chosen this film as a perfect movie, but because forty-three years ago, on this day, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, and they were introduced to the United States. And, and interestingly enough, they were not introduced to the United States by um, – oh, wait a minute. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking of something else. <laughs> Oops. I think so many had, we'll save that I'm not really sure on the figure, but it, it was like one of the largest viewing audiences of all time. How, think, how yes, did everybody right. know to look? Because they'd seen them coming off the planes already, and the Screaming oh, Girls were well, already there. I think uh, I think Ed, as, as he usually did, would, would promote them like months in But they had a hit oh. record at the time. They had a hit record. Um, so they were already yeah, hot they property. Were, they were on their way, man. Um, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the big hit. And uh, when they hit the United States, they hit hard because they had a number one hit record. And then when they went on Sullivan, um, there was just no turning back. Music was yeah. changed forever. And at that time, I mean, Ed Sullivan was the only game in town. That was the one you aimed for. I mean, there were other shows that had music on them, but if you hit Sullivan, you were and that, made. That I mean, we're talking about Hard Day's Night, the movie today. But if you watch the Sullivan shows, they are just still incredible. Especially yeah. where Ed's bawling everybody out yeah. and telling them to shh and stuff like that. It's really <laughs> Cause, funny because girls were screaming so loud you well, couldn't yeah. hear the band. I, I always feel sorry in those watching the shows for the act that comes before or after the Beatles because what are you, you know gonna do? before the Beatles nobody's paying attention because they know the Beatles are coming on, and then afterwards it's the you know you've had the the thrill of the Beatles and how do you match up to that? And when afterwards? I was I was. Four, and I remember seeing this, and there wasn't a soul anywhere but in front of their television set. Yeah. I, I do remember that. You saw this. You yeah, were one of the amazing record-setting audience. Wow. And I remember everybody, everybody was waiting for this show to come on in this neighborhood. Everybody, I went to, I was a real little kid, and they walked me through these houses, and my cousin would take me around. They were all waiting for the Beatles. That's what they were all waiting Even for. Even a four-year-old was Everybody hip to was this. Going, oh, it's just it's so huge that this is the first one of the first major TV experiences where everybody saw it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And to this day, that's an imprint. Um, and they were on for three straight weeks, and I expected them to be on the Beatles every day for the rest of my life until I got old enough <laughs> to understand that they weren't. It wasn't. 
the Beatles with Ed Sullivan. It was Ed Sullivan presents presenting the Beatles. We're talking about A Hard Day's Night. It's today's perfect movie on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. But this is not just a fancy, whimsical, a capricious notion in the minds of our film guys. There are hard and fast rules that uh, that a film has to uh, pass, these tests, before arriving there. And gentlemen, what are those rules? <laughs> I hope you got your rules in front of you, George, because I don't. Hey, the first rule is these... These films create the world they exist in. And they wholly sustain that world, regardless. That's right. And regardless of changes in society, they maintain that and and continue to be entertaining from there on. Yes. And <laughs> most importantly, of course, because I know this part, <laughs> is there's never numerically rated one greater than another because they are all perfect in their scale. That's right. See, you see what happens when we take a week off. We just yeah. we just go completely to pieces. <laughs> Let's talk about rule number one. Let's talk about this amazing black and white movie yeah. when they could have well gone In color. In black and white. Yeah, and it, well, because still, I mean, color was was becoming the norm, but mostly for you know for studio films, a lot of the little movies were still black and white because it was cheaper. But also, Richard Lester, the director, has said... Who was uh, an American. Who was an American, yeah. An American expatriate How did he get England. that sweet gig? Yeah. That, yeah. He, um, he said that, um, that he couldn't imagine trying to shoot this movie in color, mostly because color needs a lot more babying uh, to, to get good color photography, especially at that time. Um, J. So, Todd, clearly very busy and important where he is there in North Carolina, yes. <laughs> it's called a hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, the black and white was chosen probably A, for cost, and right. B, for expediency. But it looks fantastic. Now, listen, uh, I was, wasn't was on the proper uh, – didn't get the proper memo at the proper time, so I was watching a movie that we're soon to review, so I didn't right. get a chance to review this, but I it left an impression on me from my own childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think – I surely must have seen it on TV. I don't think my parents actually took me to the theater to see it. But uh, – and oh, and, the, oh, and the, the lads are just so dreamy in this. They're just so dreamy. And they're incredibly young. And they're yeah. witty and, and sassy and but, quick. But, you know, when this movie came out um, – there was nothing like it. In fact, everything that you kind of see today is, is kind of loosely based on this form, the cinematic form that Richard Lester had been kind of doing for a number of years, and then he, it all accumulated and just became the form when he did The Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Right. And the, this movie is, has its own distinct kind of style, a little bit of surrealism, a lot of music, and a lot of fun. These guys are... Unlike, you know, if you're going to do a rock and roll movie now, they have to be threatening. You know, they have to be, we're going to pillage your town, we're going to burn it down. But not the Beatles, man. They were just the new guys. And you can see the social contrast very much like um, in The Nutty Professor, that is, the train has gone by in that movie. Right. But in this, this, this movie, is the you're an- watching the train go by. Right. The this Beatles is the antithesis the of The Nutty Professor. Yeah. This is what was really going on when Jerry Lewis and his crowd were trying to still convince us that, you know, that the uh, the martini set was still the way to go. They were, that train had gone by so fast that people were just, they had no idea what had happened. And on and a Hard Day's Night, here you are, you have the, the whole new generation uh, that's coming, you know, the post-war music deal in glorious black and white, you know. And it's rock stars in suits with long hair on a train, you know. Craziest place in all, you know, it's not very... 
It's not what you consult. Nowadays, you would never do that, of course, but here they are, and they're perfectly acceptable. And you it's, know? it's notable that it was just the year before that Nutty Professor was out, yeah, and, and its this, vision this of like, teenage Americana. This was like six. This was released like six months after Nutty Professor. And it couldn't be more different. Uh, just uh, as before we move on too far, let's uh, review just a little bit of the action, and there is a... There's a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, you got the right one that time. Excellent. <laughs> spoiler alert. So spoiler if you alert. haven't seen know. Hard Day's Night. This movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna to reveal the end of Hard Day's Night to you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the story, such as it is, and the beautiful thing about this film is it's so loosely formatted. It's almost like like you're watching, you're just there. It's kind of it's it's very realistic, I, somewhat. Um, as as it's basically a day in the life of the Beatles as their manager and his his much too tall uh, lackey try to get the Beatles <laughs> to this television studio for a special they're supposed to do, and that's all it is. And there's one big stumbling block, Paul has brought his grandfather. Yeah, which is really great. In fact, we have a little segment here, and this is one of the really neat things about the movie. It's sort of the very naturalistic but but silly dialogue that is featured. Um, if you could play the little thing called Paul's Grandfather. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. We know that, but what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, oh, poor old thing. Hey, mister, are you nursing a broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? It's very clean. Hello, Grandfather. Hello. He can talk then, can he? Of course he can talk. He's a human being, isn't he? Well, if he's your grandfather, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting is that the Beatles were pretty much the world champions of culture at this point when they made this movie, but they still backed the Beatles up with a famous television star from Britain. Right. Uh, Wilfred... <laughs> this is 1964. and Yeah, Paul's grandfather was played by Wilfred Bramall, who uh, had become very notable, uh, quite a fixture on British television, and probably was best known for the show Steptoe and Son, uh, <laughs> which, the, which Sanford and Son is based on. Oh, and in the beginning right? it says, mm-hmm. starring the Beatles with, Wilf- and, with Wilfred Bramall. You know, this, these are like the the greatest singing sensations, and even at that time, they knew they there was something special, you know. But I find that still astounding that a movie company would say, "No, we got to have a star with well, you there." And what was interesting is, of course, to to English audiences, you know, the the parents of the Beatles fans would go with them to see this, and they go, "Oh, Wilfred Bramble, how wonderful!" But in America, <laughs> hilarious. But in the movie. you know, seeing that here in America, they go, "What kind of a name is Wilfred?" You know, I mean, no one had heard of Wilfred Bramble over here. So that was kind of interesting that they, you know, because the film was basically bankrolled kind of by United Artists, an American company. It's like $500,000 somewhere around there, right, right yep. George? What about. a deal. And, you know, Richard Lester shot it very, I mean, this is a, an, a, this is a verite film. Uh, it's just it's all over the place, but 
you know, it works. Verite means true you know? to life. No, right. No. And that well, and it's interesting. There is a there was a script written for it, uh, and they kind of Alan used, Owen. Yeah, was Alan Owen wrote the script, and I believe he actually got a some award. He got nominated for, for an yes. Oscar. Him and despite the fact that they didn't stick, they to didn't his... really use a whole lot of the <laughs> script. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, basically, some of the best parts of it just kind of came out of uh, him and George Martin got nominated on this. I think. Yeah. The, uh, I, the there's a great scene where uh, Norm Rossington, who plays Norm, their their manager, is trying to get them back into their dressing room, and he accidentally pushes them out the fire escape. To which they all shout, "We're free!" and they run down the fire escape. And they go out in this this field, and they're playing around to one of their songs, and uh, it all and it's all shot from a helicopter. And that all came out of that day. A helicopter happened to be there, and. Lester and his people went over and said, could we take our cameras up in the helicopter and film the guys? So, so they did. They filmed it. And what happened, one of the cinematographers in an interview said that when he got up there, he noticed his battery on his camera was dying. So the camera was dropping from like 24 frames per second to 18 to 14 to 10 to 8. And he didn't want to tell Richard Lester because he didn't want to be mad. Which means they were moving a lot faster. Right. So that when the next day when they reviewed this footage – they're all running around at high speed. Keystone Coppish. And know? Lester came to, to Gilbert Taylor, the, the cinematographer, and said, you're brilliant. That's a great idea. And he's like, oh, well, thank you. And, and you know, that, that was probably <laughs> imitated on at least, oh, it seems like hundreds of rock and roll movies oh, yeah. after that. That yeah, whole yeah, little scenario. Because everyone, like uh, Herman's Hermits and, and um, Dave Clark Dave Five. Clark These five. were all big competitors to the Beatles. And I think the, 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 probably the, the best American one was the one with featuring the prefab for the monkeys. Yeah. Uh, the movie <laughs> Don Kushner's Monkeys. Yeah. Don Kushner. Rock concert monkeys. Who took a lot of grief, but listen, Harry Nilsson did a lot of their songwriting for him, and that's a, yeah. that's oh, a whole other story. Bigger, but, all those great good, artists. But good we're not talking about those guys. We're not talking guys. about those guys. The we're talking about the greatest rock and roll group of all time. That's right. And again... No argument, folks. No argument there. So <laughs> this came out in 1964, just... Uh, right after the Sullivan Show, they started making this, and then it was released in August of that year. Right, wow. in the United States. Yeah. In 64. Actually, it was released in England first, yeah. and then Sweden. Sweden. And then... The United States and then Iceland. Iceland. <laughs> How about that for pattern? You know, but, marketing oh, campaign. Well, let me let me get. We haven't finished the story yet. Hey. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyways, they, they, so anyways, Norm and his assistant are trying to get the Beatles all set up, and so they take them to a big party, and uh, and there's this great scene where they're being asked questions by by different people at the party and press about what they think about um, just different aspects, and they're really great little. Little, I don't know what you call them, just wordplay. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? So I left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. Do you think these haircuts have come to stay? Well, this one has, you know. It's stuck on good and proper now. <laughs> Frightfully nice. Uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? Arthur. No, actually, we're just good friends. You're the brown, aren't they? What do you call that collar? Oh, um, a collar. Oh, do you often see your father? No, actually, we're just good friends. How do you like your girlfriends to dress? <laughs> and that was all real, right? I mean, they were yeah, just I, asking the random questions, and they were really... I, I know that they ad-lib some. It's And actually, it's interesting that um, on one of the interviews, they say that a lot of what you think is ad-libbed was actually an Alan Owen script. So uh. it's hard to tell sometimes which are, which are ad-libs and, and which are actually scripted lines. But I, um, I tell you, George, I, 
I call this movie Lightning in a Bottle because it's perfectly preserved. The whole big door opening for music that had never been has never been the same since the Beatles. Um, you know, hit Sullivan and this Hard Day's Night just reinforced Cemented it. That well, they were here to stay. Yeah, but not only not only is a lightning in a bottle when you watch this movie. Well, not only is it perfect a perfect preservation of what the Beatles were at the beginning of their career, but also I think the way that well as the film progresses and they get to the TV thing and they put on their TV show, the way that Lester shot the concert at the end was kind of unprecedented because Three it's cameras. very loose. Actually, I think it's six cameras going. Really? Uh, one, of course, they couldn't use because one of his really great cinematographers, he said he shot all this stuff, and every time something interesting would happen, he would turn the camera somewhere else so they couldn't yeah. use any. Well, we know all about that, don't we, George? Um, <laughs> was it that, that wasn't intentional. <laughs> we, no, it, well, no, it, it was never just, is intentional, Nick. It never is intentional. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, the, I mean, this constant the cameras are constantly moving, and it's very interesting because this is one of the first movies I can think of to utilize – Handheld cameras all the way through. I mean, all the time. The camera's never nailed oh, down. Oh, is that right? It's and just you know, moving all the time. The, you know, if you look at this, you look at some of the footage they shot, the cameras that they're using are Aeroflex cameras, which Little are single-lens reflex camera. cameras where they can look yeah. right down through the lens. And at that time in the United States, they were still using the Mitchell Rackover camera, which you really couldn't look through when you were filming something. You had to set up marks on the floor, and then you, uh, you set up the shot, and then they had the assistant camera who would make sure it got the focus marks. You couldn't really look through the lens. The Aeroflex was one of the first great cameras that really freed you to, to run around and look right through the lens. People don't realize that, but the Mitchell was a very difficult and heavy camera to use, and it was the Hollywood standard right. at that the time. And it was a German camera. The Airflex was a German camera, and that's why the English had them at the time. Right. So the, they didn't use uh, Jerry Lewis's uh, video assist? No, they used no video assist. No. Even more in amazing. In fact, that, that's the astounding thing is that they were just – he says in the documentary that uh, – you know, they just let those cameramen at their whim. Yeah. You know? And if you look really close, because the, I mean, it looks like in some ways they were trying to do this concert almost in real time because he kept the cameras going. And there's a couple of shots in the, if you look really close in the uh, concert footage, where you can see Richard Lester, yeah. the director, kind of walking in the background or walking down in front of the audience because it was great footage. You didn't want to waste it, you know. Now, if you watch this movie closely um, you, and you really examine it, you watch it, you know. Um, you'll see that they don't use the word Beatles much in the movie. They just say the Beatles on, on print, but they don't say, and here are the Beatles. So you get inside these guys, and I think that that's what people identified with was their personalities. They kind of knew who they were because you're seeing them. They're not really acting. They're behaving like themselves. There's no Brian Epstein. They have a phony manager. But I think that's one of the reasons why people identified with them because they saw them as themselves, and then they saw them perform, you know? Um, to this day, I think that people are just they, – they can remember how John acted, George acted, and, and they were a lot of fun. And I've heard so many rock musicians quote that this is the reason why they became rock and rollers because it looked like it was so much this fun movie. watching Hard Day's Night. We're talking about it's perfect, you know? the perfect movie that is Hard Day's Night released in uh, 1964 on the heels of the performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was 43 years ago. Tonight, Filmically Perfect, examines these gems of the cinema, and this certainly does qualify. So it creates the world without question. Oh, no doubt. Huh, sustains George? it. Oh, it sustains it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the just the, the way that Richard Lester, I mean, he starts it right from the beginning. And it's interesting, he even talked about how he wanted to lead people into this, this sort of bizarre world of these musicians. Right at the beginning, there's this wonderful scene 
where this old uh, old British very stout fellow comes on the train and he's in the car with the Beatles. That's great. Yeah. And and he's he's uh, he's complaining because. They're they're making noise and they got the window open. He's like, I ride on this train twice a week and blah 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 blah. <laughs> and finally, he throws them out. But the first thing they do is they go up to the windows of the car inside. The way the English uh, train cars are designed, the the uh, aisle goes down one side and then the, the the suites are on the other. So they're all got their faces pressed up, going, Mister, can we have our ball back? Can we have our ball back? And he's like, Ugh. And then uh, he's <laughs> trying to read his paper and he hears him again. He looks up and now they're outside yeah, the train, running along next to right it. There. One of them's on a bicycle and they're going, Can we have our ball back? Give our ball back. So. There's this real surrealistic thing that goes on all the way through the movie. Uh, there's another sequence where where John is John's taking a bath and he's pretending to be a German U-boat commander and and Norm the manager comes in and, and orders him out of the bathtub and pulls the plug and all the water goes down the drain and John's not in there. Yeah, there's no sides either. It goes away. Yeah, and so and so Norm's like looking at what and then John suddenly like walks in the in the scene fully dressed and says, you know, we're gonna go, you know. So all the way through, there's these and little they hold funky that. bits. They hold that tone all the way through the picture. Yep. You know, just this kind of goofiness. There's a, a scene with um, uh, the uh, w- the uh, shaving cream on the mirror. You oh know? Well, yeah, that's that's brilliant. <laughs> I where, remember that one? Yeah, he's trying. Do to you sh- remember that, huh, Nikki? I do. Yes. See, that's why this uh, this movie, you know, it really really champions rule number three. It's still a great valid movie, and it's the perfect time capsule of 1964. I have to tell you, I'm really, I'm really sorry that I didn't get a chance to see it, but I did check around a couple of video stores. Hard to, uh, yeah, hard to come a, by. Miramax has the best looking co- copy, and it has the. Um, it's also on TV soon, right, George? That's right. It actually was on last night, uh-huh. and uh-huh. it is on, I believe, this weekend. Uh, they are running it again. I'm sorry, I don't have the time, but just check uh, your cable guide. Try to get or the Miramax uh, collector series. That's really good. There's some behind the scenes stuff. I love to watch those. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so there's lots and lots of behind the scenes stuff. Lots of interviews because. The nice thing is, whenever they did this stuff, most of the people behind the film, Walter Shenson, the producer, and, and Dick Lester, the director, and everybody were, st- were still alive and, and had very vivid memories of uh, making this film, which is great. Cause that so often that, most of those guys happen. have done a lot of films since then, but this is the one that sticks, you know, because this is the one that changed the world. And uh, you'll notice that the Beatles, their high contrast value between the people they're playing with, it's the old culture you know it's the old you know, stodgy british culture and then the new they don't really thing. poke fun at them they just kind of go their own way in this movie you mm-hmm. know how long after a hard day's night was help made um i think it was within two years yeah but, but that was the next 66 yeah, yeah. And it's, color. yeah it's 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 a much different film it still has a lot of the really goofy humor and i really like it it's it's not this film though it's because because of the color and the story is a little more developed, not much, <laughs> but uh, but the 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 color makes it look a totally different movie. And, and Dick and Lester was time, becoming it was, the Beatles' influence had permeated all over. Everybody was dressing like them and acting right. like them, and there was scads of music was changed for good. By so it them. didn't have the almost sort of surprise impact, or I mean to say, the newness, the crispness, the curiosity that everybody curiosity. had for them. You know? Right. Um, you know when when Ed stands up there and he goes, "These are good boys. These are good boys." <laughs> and that was a big thing then, from what I understand. If if Ed Sullivan called you over and shook your hand, yeah. that was that was like the kiss from the angel kind of thing. That was because I mean, he did it with Elvis too, you know, right. and and got Elvis's career this going. This is a good boy. This yeah. is a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> and now and now a word from cigarettes. So yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, speaking soon. of uh, not necessarily appropriate, actually, this movie is. 
sanitized for our protection. You can watch this with your kids. Oh, yeah. It's oh, a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it all, man. Yeah. As they used to say, what was it? The Beatles want to hold your hand. The Rolling Stones want to pillage your town. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they used to say. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Well, and it is so interesting to look at them. I mean, to look back, you know, after 40 years and look at this movie. And it's look at 43 look at, years. Look at these, That's amazing. Look at these four is. young guys in their, their, their funky suits and ties. And how can you not like them? And, you know? and, then, and then compare, you know, the, this, this, these exemplary, exemplary rock and roll stars with – how we've progressed or maybe regressed in, in music and, and what we have now that, that the music industry, the pop music industry, tries to palm off on us as, as And most importantly stars. on this movie, the last thing that got hung on the movie and the last song to be written for the movie was its title piece. That's right. Oh, that's one of the best stories that goes on is all the way through production, the film was titled Beatles Number One. Yeah, Beatles oh. Number One. Well. And they started trying to come up with a title for it, and they were talking to the guys, and and they they and somehow that Hard Day's Night is part of Ringo's vernacular. It comes out, you know, if they'd had a long section, be well, that was a hard day's night. That was good, George. And, and <laughs> I'm working on it. I still think uh, we should do dialogue excerpts with George doing the voice. <laughs> of, uh... But uh, but Walter Shenson, you know, they they'd written, he had them write like at least six new songs for the movie, and 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 then came to them and said. Guys, we need a song for the opening, and and you know we're gonna. They knew they were gonna call it Hard Day's Night. We need something with Hard Day's Night. And they came back the next morning, and they'd written a song, and they played it for him. And he said, "And that's I've heard the Beatles had done that for people. Wrote a song literally. That's right, you know, overnight. But here's this this thing that just this movie they've been working on, and all of a sudden we know it as Hard Day's Night. It was the last item on the table. You know, that's right. All the way up to the the big opening chord. That was one of the last things they did. I understand. So. Okay, we got one one other little little funky uh, piece of business here. That little re- recording from the film. This is near the end where they are getting ready to go to the show, and their tailor has been trying to get them measure for their costumes. Who is their real tailor? Who is their actual tailor? The guy who did all those <laughs> oh, wonderful outfits cool. for them. Yes. And as they're they're marching out, um, the last thing you'll hear, John comes over to him. He, the the tailor has his tape measure up. Yes. Measuring Paul's shoulders, and Paul walks away, and John walks up with a pair of scissors. And don't cane me, sir. I was led astray. Oh, shut up, John. They're waiting for you in the studio. Gee, I'm down to do a bit of work. Oh, God bless you, Ringo. Oh, this is the teacher's pet. Crawler. Oh, uh, Shade the class, eh? I'll lay off. Temper. Well, well you get a move. I'm not waiting for you. Sorry. I now declare this bridge open. <laughs> Which was they had many different. I now declare the synagogue open. I now, yeah. now declare the palace open. There, there was like many, five, many different, ten takes different ones, of that. and that's the one yeah. they picked in the editing. Yeah. Okay, we have to wrap up, gentlemen. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to say I didn't notice any particular spoiler. The spoiler. Oh, spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you something, Nikki Dakota. If you remember seeing this movie in the theater, yeah. here's the spoiler. Tell yeah. what the spoiler is, George. Yeah, you're really old. <laughs> <laughs> We just spoiled the ending for you. If you remember seeing this movie, you are old. Hey! This is Don't forget the business of Filmically Perfect. Oh, yes. Uh, you mean uh, uh, perfectmovie.net? Perfect and you can write to uh, J. Todd and George at filmguys at perfectmovie.net. It's J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to the big stars. J. Todd, hey. thank you. George Willeman, the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress. George, thank you. Yeah, yeah, ciao, yeah, Bella. Yeah, yeah. ciao, Bella. I'm Nikki Dakota. <laughs> Meet you back here next week when we she do. Loves you. Next week we're doing 
Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize. One of the most important documentaries of our time. Don't miss it. Be there. Be square. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.